Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. HBO appears to have done the unthinkable, successfully adapt a video game into an excellent story, and at the same time, tell a fresh and interesting new story set in a zombie apocalypse. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun. I went to the movies twice this week and saw a pair of movies that couldn't be more different from each other. I'll review Plane and The Whale. Plus... I spent this past weekend with the Italian Stallion. All the Rocky movies are now on Crave, and I watched them all. Let us begin with the aforementioned zombie show. This week marked the debut of HBO's The Last of Us. If you don't think there's hope for the world, why bother going on? You haven't seen the world. So you don't know. You keep going for family. I'm not family. No. You're cargo. Why are you so important? Somewhere out west. They're working on a cure. I think what really impressed them was the fact that I didn't turn into a monster. If she so much as twitches. <laughs> She was faking it for fun. It has been months since I saw the first teaser trailer for this, and I got excited when I saw what appeared to be some sort of dark and scary-looking show. Pedro Pascal on screen, a.k.a. The Mandalorian, a.k.a. The Red Viper from Game of Thrones, and Bella Ramsey, who played the tough, scrappy kid in Game of Thrones, Liana Mormont. I don't care if he's a bastard. Ned Stark's blood runs through his veins. He's my king from this day until his last day. And then as I continued to watch the teaser, I realized it was a zombie show and thought, well, yay, another zombie show. I came to learn, though, that this is not just any other zombie show. It's based on a video game from 2013. And from what I understand, it is a revered video game described by some as the greatest story ever told in video games. But video game adaptations, well, not only are they rarely good, they're usually bad. This TV show, at last check, is at 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. The story's pretty simple. It's set 20 years after the initial outbreak, and a guy named Joel, played by Pascal, has to get this girl, Ellie, played by Ramsey, across the country through a sea of ruthless killers, raiders, and actual monsters. And the zombies in this, and maybe they're, they might not even technically be called zombies in the, the Last of Us cinematic universe, I don't know, uh, but I don't care. Uh, they're different here. They're not infected with a virus. They're infected with a fungus that takes over people's bodies and uses them as hosts. And some of the ways this fungus makes people change, it is pretty funky and pretty scary. So they're rewriting the zombie rules a little bit here. So I dig that. As for the show itself, the first episode was dark, haunting, tense, intense, and beautiful. The acting is superb, thanks to the heartfelt performance given by Pascal, as we see the beginnings of the outbreak and what he lost. And then we fast forward 20 years to see what kind of world they live in behind this giant concrete wall and the horrible things they have to endure just to survive. Kind of felt like the 2006 movie Children of Men, 
with a dark, gritty style that brought us into their world without kind of hammering us over the head with it. Like we were just in it. And I'm totally hooked. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Me want episode two now. Also worth noting that it was filmed in Alberta from July 2021 to June 2022 and is thought to be the biggest TV production in Canadian history. So this first season is going to be nine episodes. The new episodes air Sunday on HBO. Oh, and by the way, the supporting cast also includes... A familiar face, at least if you are a nerd like me and Jeff. A woman appeared on screen and I thought, I know her. I know her voice. Couldn't figure it out. I looked it up. The actor's name is Anna Torv, whom the couch potatoes know best from a show called Fringe. And yes, any excuse I can find to use the 80s version of the theme song for Fringe, which they only used one time over the course of five seasons of weirdo sci-fi TV on Fox. Yeah, here comes the flourish. Ah, I couldn't resist, Jeff. I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Have you seen the trailer for this show? No, but my when it first aired, my social media just blew up. Everybody was talking about it, and I, I sort of had I had the FOMO thing, the fear of missing out. But I, I quickly realized that it was a a zombie thing, and it was pretty gross in spots. And I was like, "Well, I can't watch that. That's not up my alley." And uh, but everyone was just raving about it, and how, like you said at the beginning, how it's like finally a a video game that's been turned into a movie or show that's actually worth watching. So I. I I wish I could get into it, but I'm afraid of the nightmares and this and the grossness of it all. So I'm glad you you got a new show that you enjoy, though. That's something. Yeah, and some of the monsters and some of these these infected, um, they look like something out of Guillermo del Toro's worst nightmares, and uh, he 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 creates some pretty creepy stuff. So yeah, you might want to stay away from this one, unless the FOMO just. You can't shake it. Hey, by the way, I also mentioned uh, Pedro Pascal, a.k.a. The Mandalorian. Well, good news this week for fans of the Disney Plus Star Wars show The Mandalorian because the first full trailer for season three has debuted. I'm going to Mandalore so that I may be forgiven for my transgressions. This is the way. Oh, God, I love that music. And I'm just, I'm so excited. Season three starts on Disney Plus on March 1st. So can't wait for that because it's been a while. December 2020 was, as we pointed out last week, is when season two wrapped up. So, yeah, the, the, the wait times between... Seasons of shows now is starting to get. I understand why because they need time to you know do all the visual effects, yeah. but it's getting kind of ridiculous. And it used to be. Uh, it feels like the first couple of years of Disney Plus that we didn't go a full month without getting either a Star Wars or a Marvel show. And if this doesn't start till March first, then we've gone like since the end of Andor, which was when was that? November or early December? Yeah. Almost three whole months without anything. A full quarter of a year, that's kind of weird, but uh, I guess they figure they got people hooked now that people won't be dropping their Disney Plus subscriptions uh, in between. Well, they, they, I mean, and I know you're not into the cartoons, but they've got uh, season two of The Bad Batch started on January 4th. Yeah. Uh, so that was, uh, that reminds me, I got a, I only watched the first episode, so I'm a couple behind on that so one. You've got a batch of them sitting there for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure they will not be bad. I really liked the first season. It was a lot of fun. And exciting news for fans of this hit comedy. 
The Ted Lasso welcome wagon has arrived. Ted! Ted Lasso, season two wrapped up in 2021, and we've been wondering, we just wondered aloud last week as we looked ahead to the things we're excited for in 2023, wondered when is it coming back? Well, this week we got the answer, sort of. Apple TV Plus has announced season three will debut in the spring. No firm release date yet. Also, we're still not sure if season three will be its final season. They've been... There have been rumors that it's going to be the final season, but Apple TV Plus would not say. Usually they'll, whenever they uh, a network or a streamer will announce news about a show, like a release date, they'll say the, the third and final season uh, will debut and blah, 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 to just try to give you some more urgency to watch it and get caught up and subscribe to their service and whatever. Uh, who knows? So Ted Lasso, excited, man. Oh, there you go. I've not seen it. Uh, it's on my list, but I also don't have Apple TV Plus, so it'll be a while before I get to it at some point. I did weirdly watch um, three movies with Jason Sudeikis in the last couple of weeks. I, wa- I, re- I rewatched them, I guess. I, We're the Millers, a, a comedy with Jennifer Aniston that he did some years ago that's very funny. And then the, both the Horrible Bosses movies, which also has uh, Jennifer Aniston in it, as it turns out. But uh, I was like, man, the Sudeikis is cracking me up. i got to get on that Ted Lasso train at some point. It's so good. It is so good. And I know it's tough to justify adding another streamer just for one show. Yeah. But that's pretty good. And they've got some good movies and other original series on there that I'd, I've been meaning to check out. Lots of prestige stuff on Apple TV+. Plus. Up next, I'm guessing... Prestige is not a word Jeff will use to describe the film he is about to review as we head back to the Butlerverse. Yes, that's right. Back to the Butlerverse. OMG. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And I went back to the Butlerverse this week with Gerard Butler's new action movie, Plane. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. The seatbelt signs have been turned on. My passengers, my responsibility. One way or another, to get off this island. I like this guy. Plane, rated R, only in theaters January 13th. Plane stars Gerard Butler as a commercial airline pilot and also stars Michael Coulter as one of his passengers. After flying through a storm, their plane is damaged and it's forced to land on this island in the southern Philippines. This island is uninhabited officially, except there is a band of guerrilla warriors there who like to take anyone they can get their hands on hostage. And so a plane provides them quite an opportunity and it's up to Butler and Coulter to save the day. There are fewer than 20 passengers and crew aboard the plane. So it's not like there's 300 people involved in a big crowded jetliner or whatever. It is a jet, but it's very uh, sparsely attended for this flight, as it turns out. And the thing about Coulter that you do need to know is that he's a prisoner. He boarded the plane in handcuffs with a cop. It's a prisoner transfer thing, kind of like, uh, I guess, the real planes like Con Air don't exist, maybe. So they have to just put these criminals on regular jets with everyone else. But he's also the only one aboard the plane who has combat experience from his military history, and they are all going to need that experience. The story is super basic and straightforward, as the title kind of suggests, and the movie just cooks along quickly, maybe a little too quickly. It it all of a sudden became clear to me that the big final action set piece was about to happen, and I thought, oh, wow, this is it. We're at the end already, eh? Uh, I, 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 first, I sort of thought the movie was too thin, that 
it could have used another complication and another action set piece before the finale. But then my friend pointed out to me that the movie was an hour 45 in length, which is pretty perfect. And so maybe I've just been indoctrinated by all the way too long movies we've seen over the last 20 years that when a normal length movie all of a sudden comes out that it feels too short. But like I said, it's also super basic in the plot department. So it kind of tricks you that way. The passengers are a combination of people wanting to help Butler and Coulter. Uh, they're also people who are clearly just going to be cannon fodder. And then there's a couple of jerk faces you sort of hope get killed somewhere along the way. There's also a family element with Butler's character. He, of course, is the average man caught in the middle of something so much bigger than himself. But the movie also wisely has him defer to Coulter's military experience. So while Butler is kind of the hero, it's not him, you know, coming off like a Rambo or even like a diehard where he just knows how to do everything. He needs Coulter well, way more than Coulter needs him. And in fact, I think that's what I like the most about this movie. Because for a movie about a pilot who fights bad guys, they keep it pretty real. There are a couple of... Quite ridiculous things, of course, but mostly the action is grounded in reality. Butler has a, a gunless hand-to-hand fight at one point with a bad guy that's very awkward, and it looked very painful for both of the guys fighting there. I was like, oh, that would hurt fighting like that. Uh, some of the other action ended up being quite a bit gnarlier than I was expecting. I had to look away a couple of times, but it was pretty exciting. It was a thrilling movie. I enjoyed it. I can't say it's something that you need to rush out to theaters to see. You can definitely wait to see it at home, which seems to be what everyone's doing anyway. My buddy and I uh, went Saturday afternoon and there were maybe 15 people total in the theater. The movie made $10 million in its opening weekend, but it came in fifth behind Avatar, Megan, Puss in Boots, and a man called Otto. So this is not going to be, you know, the movie we all remember Gerard Butler for. But once you do once you can't get your eyes on it, once it's uh, playing at home, free on streaming, or even to rent, I think it's definitely a fun way to spend an evening. I will give plain three couch cushions out of five, Brett. And as far as new movies out this weekend, let's start with one called Missing. My mom never came home from her trip. I don't know where she is. So this is like a spiritual sequel to a movie from 2018 starring John Cho called Searching, where his daughter went missing and he is searching for her. But the whole movie is shot just with... It's it's only on a laptop screen or like computer screens or phone screens. That's it. And this movie appears to take the same angle. And in this case, it's a daughter. So it's not the same characters, new characters, new story. Daughter's looking for mom, getting good reviews. Uh, it's at 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Next up, this movie, I... I'm ashamed I didn't know this story before it's based on true events. It's called Women Talking. If we do not forgive these men, we forfeit our place in heaven. Surely there must be something worth living for in this life, not only the next. Women Talking is a film written and directed by Sarah Pauly. It's based on the 2018 novel of the same name, and it's inspired by real-life events that occurred at the Manitoba Mennonite colony in Bolivia. So this is a colony that ended up going down to Bolivia years back from Mexico, but their origin is in the province of Manitoba. And in 2010, eight women from this isolated Mennonite colony 
They grapple with reconciling their reality with their faith after it's revealed the men from their community drugged and raped the community's women at night for years. So that's just an unbelievable story, and it has an amazing cast anchored. You heard the voice of Francis McDormand in there. So, yeah, terrific cast, Claire Foy, Rooney Mara, and many more. And just mentioning this, another high-powered movie as far as casting goes, we have The Sun starring Hugh Jackman. And Anthony Hopkins, and this is actually a prequel to the 2020 film The Father, which got Oscar nominations and it was like 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Laura Dern, by the way, is also in The Sun, which serves as a prequel because I guess there are three stage plays. Uh, there's still the mother to come, I suppose. But whereas The Father did uh, great in terms of Critical reception. This one's terrible. Thirty-seven percent on Rotten, or thirty-four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's it's gone down since I last checked just a few minutes ago. So, but Hugh Jackman, Laura Dern, Anthony Hopkins. Tough to go wrong with that. Those are your new movies this weekend. And up next, Jeff wants to tell you about a Critics' Choice winner. You are listening to the Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. We're going to talk some Rocky a little later in the show, but right now. I finally got to see one of the big award seasons movies that I've been looking forward to this week. Brendan Fraser gives a performance of a lifetime in The Whale. Where'd you get all that weight? Someone close to me passed away and it had an effect on me. You haven't seen her since she was eight years old and you're gonna reconnect with her? Why do you suddenly need to see her so bad? Why now? Yes. I need to know that she's gonna have a decent life where she cares about people and that she's gonna be okay. I need to know that I have done one thing right with my life. The Whale is directed by Darren Aronofsky, who you may know from such films as Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan, The Wrestler, and the controversial Mother from 2017. The Whale's based on a play, and a lot of times when movies are based on plays, it kind of feels stagnant as the nature of plays is to have a lot of talking with a minimal number of locations. And while that is the case here, there's really only one set. The movie is by no means stagnant. The two hours absolutely flew by. Brendan Fraser stars as Charlie, a morbidly obese man who lives in an apartment in Idaho. He never leaves a home. He's an online college teacher. That's how he makes his money. And he has a friend who's a nurse who checks in on him every day. She's really, you know, helping, but also kind of not helping because in addition to regular nurse types things, she's also bringing him a lot of food he shouldn't be eating, especially after the medical situation that opens the film. And he's, uh, you know, there's no two ways about it. He's on his way to dying, it looks like. Charlie's about 600 pounds plus and is making no attempts to lose any weight. He points out he was always a big guy, but a couple of years ago, like we heard in the clip, he lost someone important. And as is in his own words, it uh, got out of control. Besides being visited daily by this nurse friend, there are only four other characters in the entire movie, which is entirely set in Charlie's apartment, aside from a flashback and one opening shot. One of those characters is a young man, a missionary from a religious organization who believes he can help Charlie. There's also Charlie's estranged daughter, a fiery performance from Stranger Things' Sadie Sink. What a exciting young actress she's turning out to be. Hopefully this is just the start of a long career for her because 
I thought in the last season of Stranger Things, she was the best thing about it. And then there's the ex-wife, played by Samantha Morton. And finally, a pizza delivery guy who brings Charlie two large pizzas every night for supper. Uh, the most unbelievable part of the movie, actually, is that those two large pizzas only cost $20. But it is set in 2016, and I guess food was cheaper then. Whatever. Over the course of the two hours, we learn a lot about all these characters, except for the pizza guy. We're dropped into Charlie's world blind. And the movie just starts peeling like an onion. It goes As it goes along, we find out all the connections between the characters, the events that have led all of them to the here and now at what may very well be the end of Charlie's life. And of course, it's Charlie's story. And Brendan Fraser is just amazing in the role. We're, we're set up to find him disgusting. But then Fraser shows us how utterly human he is. Normally, uh, the visual of this extremely large man would overshadow any attempt at subtlety, but Fraser's performance just shines through all those prosthetics and makeup. It's really quite something, and I think it'll actually be a major shock if he does not go home with the Oscar in a couple of months. Last week, he won the Critics' Choice Award and delivered this passionate speech. I was in the wilderness, and I probably should have left a trail of breadcrumbs. But you found me? And um, like all the best directors, you merely just showed me where to go to get to where I needed to be. If you, like a guy like Charlie, who I played in this movie, in any way struggle with obesity, or you just feel like you're in a dark sea, I want you to know that if you too can have the strength to just get to your feet and go to the light, good things will happen. Now that's the sort of speech that will help him win an Oscar, as if the performance wasn't enough. The Academy loves good speechifiers, and it'll be a feel-good story for Brendan Fraser to win an Oscar. Those nominations come out early next week, so we'll soon see how he fares. Awards aside, though, it's a good movie. It's a complex character study that reveals itself in a very appealing way as it goes along. It just keeps sucking you in more and more and more as you, as it goes further and further into the story. I, I can't uh, recommend it enough. Uh, I'm giving The Whale four couch cushions out of Five. Such a feel-good story indeed to see the success that Brendan Fraser is is getting for this movie because he I always liked him. I always liked Brendan yeah. Fraser. I thought he was great he was in gone those mummy for movies. Years. Yeah, he just sort he of was, disappeared. Yeah, and now he's uh this will be a comeback. And uh, obviously, if he gets an Oscar, he's even without the Oscar, he's it, this will lead to more good things for him. He'll be offered some uh, juicy roles, I would expect. Yeah, but I'm curious as well to see if he does anything silly to blow his chances, like Mickey Rourke in another Darren Aronofsky movie that you mentioned, The Wrestler, he was right. essentially a shoe-in, and I think he well, he he actually appeared on WWE or WCW or something at the time, and um, I think that may have hurt his chances a little bit. And then Eddie Murphy was the lock for his performance in Dreamgirls, but then he had to release that stupid Norbit movie, I, I'm not sure of the timeline, uh, if that's what, what may have affected him. Maybe they just would have given the award to somebody else anyway, but it just felt like those were a couple of moves that really blew the chances for those guys. I would absolutely just blame Norbit, even if it's not true. That movie is the worst I've ever seen and deserves all the blame we can heap upon it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm still mad I had to go see it. Oh, what a miserable outing that was. <laughs> also curious to know what's going to happen 
in the next season of Stranger Things with Sadie Sink's star on the rise. And you're right, she was terrific in season four. And I'm excited for her career as well. But up until now, Millie Bobby Brown, the one who plays Eleven, has always been the big shot. And you can tell that she knows and thinks she is the big shot. And she talks over all of her cast members whenever they do these roundtable uh, interviews. She sort of dominates the chat. And even when I've seen clips of Sadie Sink trying to start to answer a question and then Millie Bobby Brown would would cut her off and then Sadie Sink would sit in the background kind of, you could tell she was just steaming mad. But if she comes into this with as much star power, I mean, I... It's just gossip and whatnot, but I don't know. It could add some drama to the production. I just I hope it. I guess what I'm saying is I hope it doesn't hurt the production of the show, and those two can just get along because we need oh, yeah. Stranger Things five, Fast and Furious style, where there's all of a sudden there's no scenes with uh, Eleven and Sadie sync together, but just like uh, The Rock and Vin Diesel refuse to be in the same scenes in Fast Eight. <laughs> Maybe we'll need a, a Hobbs and Shaw style, <laughs> style spinoff. To keep Sadie Singh's character alive in this Stranger Things world. Up next, I want to tell you about the five movies I watched this weekend. All about one fighting champion. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. And I spent this past weekend with... Rocky Balboa! All six Rocky movies are now on Crave. They landed just before the conclusion of 2022. So this weekend, I watched them all. Well, almost. Starting with the Best Picture winner from 1976, the all-time classic Rocky. First of all, the theme song for Rocky, I don't know what it is about that music, but every time I hear that, just that opening, that's all I need. And I start getting goosebumps and I start smiling. I just love that music. It's so iconic. It's amazing. It's a, I, I, my buddies and I, when we play cards and uh, I'm just smoking them and then my buddy's like, no, no, I'm going to. I'm going to come back, JB. I'm going to get you. And I just go, to mock them and throw them off their game. <laughs> and then do you go it on? It works pers- in a lot of situations. Yeah. It works in a lot of situations. Yeah, no, I went on. I smoked them. It's still. It's okay, good. So, yeah, as far as Rocky goes, I always forget how good this movie is because I always talk about how Rocky Four is my favorite. And it's the one I watched the most by a mile. But it's, I, I know, I've acknowledged this before, it is by far the goofiest movie of the series, whereas the original Rocky is such a great movie about a boxer who works for a loan shark who gets a shot at the champ. Rocky, do you believe that America is the land of opportunity? Yeah. Apollo Creed does. 
And he's going to prove it to the whole world by giving an unknown a shot at the title. Plucked from obscurity, Rocky Balboa takes on the champion Apollo Creed and goes the distance. It's just an incredible underdog story, but it's also an incredible love story. You know, here's this dopey bruiser with a heart of gold who eventually wins the affection of Adrian, who's this super shy young woman who turns out to be a source of tremendous strength for Rocky as he takes on Creed, and just as he gives her strength to come out of her shell. And Burgess Meredith as Rocky's trainer, Mick, what a performance, what a voice. I forgot how much. I I haven't watched one of the movies with Mick in years, so that led to 1979's Rocky II. Yo, Adrian! I did it! Apollo wants revenge. He wants to prove to the world he is the champ, and Rocky's a bum, and he demands a rematch. Well, it doesn't go so well for him. Uh, Rocky is by far the best film in the series, but Rocky II is a worthy sequel with a great fight at the end. And then we move to 1982's Rocky III. He don't fight no real man. He fight them setups. What? You're as disgraced in this sport. Shut up, old man. You and that chump don't know where I had to come from. Bad boy, your family doing real nice, ain't it? You call yourself a fighter? Prove it now. Give me that same chance. The way you've been ducking is the disgrace. Not as good as the first two, but I think it's just as entertaining as we watch Rocky go from being this broke nobody to a rich and famous world champion. He's well-dressed, he drives nice cars, lives in a huge mansion, and he's lost his edge. And Mr. T, meanwhile, as Clubber Lang, a ferocious Clubber Lang, as you heard in that clip, makes him pay for it until Apollo Creed steps in to help Rocky train and get him back the eye of the tiger. But one of the things I love about this movie is just how powerful and scary Mr. T was because he kind of went on to, to be sort of a, uh, a, not a joke, but he uh, more of a, a comedy kind of uh, icon. And to see that, you know, the, he's in awesome shape and he's screaming and yelling, man, I get, I still get scared of Clubber Lang. I, yeah, I do too. But I also like when he's like, "Shut up, old man!" And then I think he is tells, uh, doesn't he tell Adrian, "Like, shut up, woman," or something like that? It, that kind of stuff makes me laugh, just because you know it's the opposite of the real Mister T, because he's such a sweet, gentle guy. Which is weirdly how I've come to know him, just from like you said, like he's done a lot of comedy things with Conan O'Brien and things like that. He's the nicest guy. So sometimes the tough guy thing, I, I just. I, I don't really buy it anymore, but I find Rocky Rocky Three might be the most entertaining of all these movies. You're right for sure about that. And another thing that I was really excited about when I pressed play was the runtime. It was like 90 minutes, so I got excited for the short. I can't remember what the exact, but it was well under two hours. And I thought, oh yeah, this one and the next one are short. So it was kind of nice to be able to watch these short movies because, yeah. like you, I've gotten so used to all every movie now being way too long, uh, and it was. Just nice that it was just a nice little efficient package that told a great story. And from there, we head to 1985's Rocky IV. He does. He does. I should point out Crave has the original Rocky IV, not the ultimate director's cut from 2021, Rocky versus Drago. Although the thumbnail poster, when you pull it up on Crave, it does say it's the director's cut, but that's wrong. It's the original, and that's fine by me. I like I like the director's cut, but the original has so much silly charm. I can't help but love it. And finally getting to watch it in HD was fantastic. I mean, yeah, I guess I could have rented it, but I own the DVD, but when I put the DVD in, it, it's in letterbox form, widescreen, but it 
only sits in the middle of the TV. Like it doesn't fill up the whole TV. So it was great to finally get to see this movie in high definition. I just love it so much. 1990, Rocky V. I skipped that one because I remember hating it and I just couldn't bring myself to watch it again. Did you, because you recently rewatched these movies. I think you got the Blu ray set. Yeah, of course I got the, I bought the Blu ray set and uh, somebody told Craven, they're like, oh, we'll just put it on our thing that you're paying for anyways and just screw <laughs> you out of 40 bucks, JB. All right, all right, all right. And when I got to Rocky Five, when I watched them all last year, I was, you know, I was like nervous about it because all I'd heard was bad things and I had no recollect. I don't know if I'd seen it before. I don't think I had seen it before. And maybe it was because I went in with such low expectations that I, I didn't mind it. It was kind of silly and kind of dumb and they have to jump through some hoops to get this guy to. You know, to have him like fighting this other kid or whatever, and it's just like a street brawl ends the movie. But uh, yeah, it's not it's not the best one uh, of the first five. It is the fifth best one. And from 2006, Rocky Balboa. I have not seen that movie since 2006. I liked it a lot then. I liked it a lot this time. It's a great movie that really closes the book on his fighting career. And there's also a documentary on Crave called 40 Years of Rocky, The Birth of a Classic. I haven't watched that one yet. And I'll add this. Watching these movies back to back to back, Gave me a new appreciation for the character Rocky Balboa and the care that Sylvester Stallone puts into this character. Like, we're going back to 1976 and all the way through the Creed movies. Rocky is the same guy. He's the same sort of dopey, charming, nice guy who says dumb things. Whenever he's in a press conference, he's unpretentious and lighthearted. Also, he loves Adrian so much, and that really is the heart of all of these stories, is Rocky and his love for Adrian. And I just think that that's commendable to have that kind of commitment to a character over decades. Kudos to everybody involved in these stories. I love them, and I love them all over again. And by the way, if you want to watch the follow-up movies, Creed and Creed 2, they're on Prime Video, and Creed 3 comes out in theaters in March. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. 